0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. And I guess we could say that the course will be divided into four parts. Part one, which I hope will not take me much more than next week, will be a Christian response to important steps in speculative ethics. By speculative ethics, we mean non-revelational ethics or philosophical ethics. What I will be doing in this part of the course is introducing you to some of the key systems, some of the key movements, in the history of philosophical ethics, explaining those moves, and then giving you a Christian response. For example, what is hedonism, and what is a proper Christian uh, uh, what is a proper Christian response to hedonism? What is utilitarianism? What are the major contributions that we find in Kant's, Immanuel Kant's system of ethics? and what is a proper christian response to that and so on down the line part 2 of the course will deal with the christian and society and we'll we'll talk generally about four big issues here and i'll tell you what well i'll identify the issues first and then i'll tell you why we're going to talk about them we're going to talk about the state the christian and the state And for that, your background reading will be the previously described material in my book, Social Justice in the Christian Church. We will also talk about the notion of justice. Uh, Let me say here that a lot of Christians today, a lot of Christian leaders, want uh, Christians to have a broader social conscience. And that's good. And so you'll find people like this saying a lot about justice, for example. Have you ever been in a meeting and someone came up, I have, and someone comes up to you and says, I'm a peace and justice Christian. Mm -hmm. And you can just see them exude (laughs) the pride and the arrogance. I am a peace and justice Christian. What these people really are are (laughs) left-wingers, people who would have been at home in Stalinist Russia who have no idea what peace and justice are, but who manipulate those concepts in the service of a left-wing ideology. (laughs) Well, later on in the course, you're going to hear your professor saying that It's unlikely that one out of a thousand people who talk about justice these days have any idea what the word justice means, can even give you a preliminary definition of the word justice. You are going to be exceptions to them, you see. You are not only going to be able to talk about justice, you're going to be able to define the term. We're also going to talk a little bit about economics. And the reason for that is this, again. All kinds of Christians out in the world are telling us that we should adopt a certain attitude towards society. We should approve certain social programs because, as Christians, we have an obligation to help the poor. The big problem there is that these people, who are the same people, incidentally, who'd have no idea what justice is, these same people have no idea what economics is, and consequently, Christians all over this country are being motivated to support certain social programs under the illusion that these programs will help the poor, when, in fact, these programs are devastating the poor. And then, of course, the... uh, The fourth subject that we will cover under the heading The Christian in Society is the whole business of education. We must not only be good Christians, we must be good Christian citizens, and we have reached a day when Christian workers, whether you're going to be in the pastorate or whether you're going to be a layperson or whatever uh, field of work the Lord calls you in, you had better get geared up on the education business. If you're going into the pastorate, there may it, there's a very good chance that you may someday find yourself in charge of a church or as part of a church that runs a Christian school. And so anyway, we're going to be saying a, a few things about uh, the whole business of education in this country and what Christians should be doing about it. All right, part three of the course will deal with important elements of the biblical ethic and I can hear people saying, well, it's about time we get to the Bible in this course. But remember, it's called pastoral and social ethics, all right? So I've told you that uh, we're going to give you a grounding in philosophical ethics. We're going to give you a grounding in social ethics. And let me add here, of course, you always have the right to disagree (laughs) with your professor, all right? You always have the right. Just don't do it on an exam that 's all <laughs> no what we, what I mean by that is on the exams, I want the right answers, yes, and then, after you give the right answer, I want you to feel perfectly free to add this sentence i don't agree with the right answer, <laughs> and you if you if it makes you feel better, all right, but obviously. Uh, you, you've, got to, you've got to demonstrate your familiarity with course material. Whether you agree with it or not, of course, is, is irrelevant. And then finally, we will end the course by talking about uh, some of the most important contemporary moral issues uh, of the day, and our textbook there will be Jack Davis's uh, book, uh, Evangelical Ethics. If you've looked at uh, davis 's book, you know that his chapter headings include things like contraception, reproductive technologies, uh, divorce and remarriage, homosexuality, abortion, infanticide, capital punishment, war disobedience and revol- civil disobedience and revolution, war and peace well there's a lot Notice what I say under current moral issues for the final exam, assume. That you will be asked to explain pastoral advice you would give for selected issues discussed in Davis's book. Now, I'm giving you that information ahead of time so that as you work through Davis's book, you can perhaps make notes on some of those, um, uh, uh, on some of those specific issues. In other words, what I'm going to do on the final exam is give you several test cases. In other words, you're in your study, you're, let's say, um, because of of your educational background or your calling or whatever position you have in life, someone's going to walk into your office and they're going to expect you to give them some solid counseling and advice about a particularly complex moral issue. and uh, I, will, I will take those <clears throat> test cases either from Davis's book or from other cases that we consider in class, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that may prove uh, somewhat helpful for you in the future. And we'll give you a, what I hope is a brief introduction to uh, ethics. And and what I'm basically going to do here is simply introduce you to some key words that we will be using throughout the semester. For example, let's try the color blue. Let's let's become acquainted with the difference between the words normative and non-normative. Non-normative words are words that describe. They are words that report facts. If I say to you, for example, that incidentally I got my baseball tickets for spring training and you better hurry if you're, uh, if you're a baseball fanatic, there's one really Bad team that plays down here in Florida. I think it's from Toronto. Is that right? <laughs> oh, you get, oh, you get free tickets, really? Oh, oh I'm sorry, because I was just kidding. I was just kidding. <laughs> I really love the Blue Jay, it's such a pretty symbol, I think. Anyway, I got my baseball tickets, and you better hurry, because uh, these, I understand they're going real quickly. Uh, if I say to you the Kansas City Royals train in Baseball City, that's a fact. That is a, that is a non-normative statement, okay? If I say to you the Kansas City Athletic Athletics are a bad baseball team, that's a normative statement. I don't know whether they are or not. I'm not trying to start a fight. I'm just giving you an example. Normative words are words that evaluate. They are words that appraise. They are words that appraise, A-P-P-R-A-I-S-E. Examples of normative words are, are the following. The word good, the words good and bad. Ought is a normative word. Good, bad, ought, obligation, right, wrong, and beautiful, ugly. Any word, any word that offers an appraisal or an evaluation of something is a normative word. Now there are two normative words that are most important. Obviously, in this course, we will be concerned with normative words and normative sentences for the most part. Anybody have any idea what the two most important normative words are? Let me hear. We heard... Right? Well, somebody... (laughs) One of the more, one of the two most important normative words is the word ought and the corollaries that go with it. And those corollaries that go with it would be duty and right. So anybody who said right or duty or ought, give yourself a a check, all right? What's the other key central normative word? Good. And, of course, the corollaries would be, uh, uh, the the obvious corollary here would be the word bad. Now, these two fundamental normative concepts introduce us to uh, uh, introduce us to the two major emphases in ethics. What we find is that a great deal of ethics is concerned with uh, the use of the word good, applications of the word good. And let me give you a further breakdown on this. Once we begin to unpack the word good, the first thing we encounter is a distinction between intrinsic goodness. And extrinsic goodness, or sometimes we use the word instrumental goodness. Now who knows the difference here between intrinsic goodness and extrinsic goodness? It's really not a difficult one. No doubt many of you already know the answer to that. What is, what is intrinsic goodness? Something that is good in itself, something that is valued for itself, something that is extrinsically good is good as a means to an end, is good as a means to something else. Now consider the sentence, drinking milk is good for your health. The value of drinking milk is extrinsic. See, if only you'd known that when you were eight or nine years old, you could have, you could have gotten out of a lot of trouble with your milk, uh, with your mother. You could have said, "Mom, look, this stuff is only intri- ext- extrinsically good," and she said, "I don't care, <laughs> drink it anyway." Milk is instrumentally good, but health is intrinsically good. Being healthy is good in itself. It is good for itself. Now, it may be good. Being healthy may also be good for as a means to something else. In other words, you, you probably aren't going to be a very good athlete if you're not in good health. But the reason why most of us pursue good health, at least if we have any sense, is not because it's a means to being an athlete or something else, but because it is desirable in itself. Alright. So we have a distinction here between things that are good in themselves and things that are good only as means to something else. Lots of people could, could, could live richer, fuller, happier lives if they'd get the distinction between intrinsic and intrinsic, extrinsic goods straightened out. As you know, money, money is only good as a means to other things. And you all know the people who have trouble getting that sorted out. Now one other point that we'll make by introduction here about the the notion of goodness. Uh, There is a further distinction we can distinguish between moral goods and non-moral goods. Now that may surprise some of you, but a little reflection will help you see very quickly that we often use the word good in senses that have nothing to do with morality. It is still normative, but it is not moral. For example, if I say, yum, yum, this pudding is good, I'm simply uh, using the word good in a non-moral sense. It tastes good, it, it makes me feel good, but that has nothing to do with the moral characteristics of the pudding. If I say, uh, to give another example, this is a good knife, I am again not saying anything about the moral uh, uses or moral characteristics of the knife. I'm simply saying it does its job effectively. What a knife is supposed to do is cut. And since this knife cuts well, it is a good knife but this language has nothing to do with morality. If I say uh, this man is a good boxer, Mike Tyson, for example, he is a good boxer, but take my word for it. We're using the word good in a non-moral sense here, all right? Um, Okay. So... um, don't make the mistake of assuming that every time you use the word good you are making a moral judgment you are not you are making a normative judgment but it is often not a moral judgment it is okay now the word ought also uh, invites further analysis only here our analysis will be a little briefer there are two kinds of duties in life, there are two kinds of obligations in life. And they are moral duties and non-moral duties. Now, again, some of you may say, wait a minute, I always thought every time I encountered a duty it, it had a moral ring or a moral dimension to it. No and a little reflection will make that clear. When we get to Immanuel Kant's ethics, and that will probably come early next week, we will find Kant introducing two interesting terms uh, that we can use in this connection. Kant called moral duties, he called them categorical imperatives. I love that language. I wish I had invented it. A categorical imperative is a moral duty. It is a duty you have because of certain moral considerations. Non-moral duties Kant called hypothetical imperatives. Just think how you can impress your friends this week by using these terms try to use try to use these terms this week now here's what Kant meant when he talked about non-moral duties as hypothetical imperatives a hypothetical statement is a statement that always takes an if then form if you want a, then you ought to do B. If you want an A in this course, then you ought to study hard, read your texts, prepare for your quizzes, write a bang up term paper, and so on. But notice, the obligation that says you ought to study hard is not a moral obligation. It is a hypothetical impor- uh, imperative. And it is tied directly to your desire for a particular objective. If you don't want that objective, then you don't then you're un- you're under no obligation to behave in that particular way. It is p- it, The obligation is relative to the desire, and because all human desires differ from person to person, the hypothetical imperatives will be different. Here's another example. If you don't want a speeding ticket, or if you want to avoid the risk of an automobile uh, accident, then you ought not to drive recklessly. Now the imperative, thou, you ought not to drive your automobile recklessly, is, in this instance, a non-moral situation. This is probably not the best of examples because there are moral considerations involved in driving a car recklessly, I mean, you can injure other people, you can damage property and so on. But here we're simply relating the obligation to drive carefully to your desire to avoid a speeding ticket or something else. So, many duties in life have nothing to do with morality. They are purely relative to a person's desires at a particular time. Kant said, the moral law is different. The moral law is not a hypothetical imperative that wants to know how you feel about something at the moment. The moral law is hard as nails. There is, There are no conditions attached. It isn't related to your desires or your feelings. The moral law says, this is your duty and do it, buddy. Bubba. Do your duty, period. That's the way the moral law is. Earlier I said, you can get an interesting paper by comparing what Kant wrote about the moral law and what Christians like C.S. Lewis write. At that point, if you just stop there, you might think that Kant is on a way, is on a, is on a path that many Christians can agree with. Well, we'll find out. Maybe we can, maybe we can't. So, some duties are non-moral, some, good, some examples of goodness are non-moral. Next distinction we are going to introduce you, beginning later today and next week, to three or four major schools of ethical thought. Today, I will simply introduce you to two of them. Moral systems that stress, that stress the word good are called consequentialist theories. Let's leave the word good up here. Moral theories that place their emphasis upon the good are called consequentialist theories. Now, that comes from the word consequence, consequentialist, or consequentialism. Now, of course, the language makes it clear then that we are when we start talking about these people, we're talking about people who place, uh, who, whose determine, whose reflection about um, human behavior is based upon the consequences of a human being's actions. Now, there are two other synonyms that mean the same thing. Once again, a consequentialist is a person who says what a human being should do in life depends upon the consequences of his or her behavior. Now, there are two other terms that we use as synonyms. Sometimes we call this kind of ethical theory teleological. That comes from the Greek word telos, which means end, And so once again, we're simply introducing a term here that draws our attention to the end results of our conduct, to the consequences of our conduct. The the other synonym for this position is utilitarianism. Now, later on, I'll point out that the word utilitarianism is used in several different ways, in several different senses... But what I'm the sense in which I'm using it here is simply this in the broadest possible sense of the word a utilitarian is a consequentialist a person who says that we can determine our required conduct by focusing on the end results the T loss the consequences of our behavior the other school of thought, let's draw a line here to separate. So, if, if a moral philosopher places his emphasis upon goodness, he is a consequentialist, a utilitarian, a teleologist. If a moral philosopher, on the other hand, places his emphasis upon duty, obligation, what we ought to do, then that person is a deontologist now you will not find the word deontologist in the Orlando yellow pages I don't believe although you know if it didn't cost money I might put my name in there as a deontologist wouldn't that be put up a shingle All right. deontologist what would people expect to get from a deontologist well I'd give it to them whatever they expected all right A deontologist is a person who says consequences do not determine your obligations in life. You and I have duties to behave in certain ways regardless of the consequences. Now what I want you to see here then is that philosophers who have fallen into this part of the ballpark tend to follow fairly rigid ways of thinking. Deontologists ignore consequences. In fact, Kant said, if you, if you, if you follow your desires and you do something because you think its consequences will be good, you are behaving immorally. So consequentialists and deontologists don't get along very well. In fact, you know, I was just thinking about it. I'm not sure in the whole history of the human race one consequentialist has ever married a deontologist. I'm th- you know, I, I, I can't imagine their marriage working. That might make a good interesting term paper. What would happen if a deontologist... Maybe it would make a good comedy series for NBC. I don't know. We'll think about it. These, then, are two of the four theories of ethics that we'll be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Don't worry about the other two right now. You have enough to worry about. You might, however, make an initial inquiry in your own thinking. You might ask yourself right now, if my only choice is between uh, deontology and consequentialism, which one do I pick? Am I a consequentialist? Or am I a deontologist? You might also ask what you think God is. Is God a utilitarian? I'll give you the answer. God is not a utilitarian. All right? Whether that influences your thinking on this or not, I can't say. Next distinction. And I borrow this next distinction from a British philosopher named... W.D. Ross. I like it. I think it's very helpful. W.D. Ross. I'm not sure we have Ross's book in our library, but we certainly have anthologies that contain selections from Ross's writings. Ross distinguished between two words, the word act and the word action. Oh, am I, am I getting some good stuff for next week's quiz? Oh, I'm so excited. I wish I could give it to you today. (laughs) The word... Now, remember, any philosopher, I suppose, has the right to use certain words in his own idiosyncratic way. And this is what Ross did. In Ross's ethical system, the word act is a word that refers only to the outside of something that we do. And it concerns itself primarily with the fittingness of what we do. The fittingness of what we do. With respect to the word act, the the proper question is, is this the right thing to do? Is this the fitting thing to do? Uh, If you're standing at a busy street corner, say at 436 and, um, you know, by the Altamont Mall, and here's a little old lady, and you assume she wants to cross the street, perhaps the right thing to do would be to help her across the street, all right? Um, The wrong thing to do might be just to look at her and say, Suffer, lady, and then walk across the street yourself. That wouldn't be a very nice thing to do, all right? That would be wrong. So, when we consider acts, the right, the right adjectives are right and wrong. An action looks at the inside of, of, um, of our behavior. It looks at our motives, our reasons for behaving in certain ways, and it says those motives or those reasons are either good or bad. Good or bad. Say you decide to help that little old lady across the street because you know she's wealthy and she's prone to give large tips to seminary students (laughs) who do kind things for her. Wouldn't you feel shameful behaving in a way like that for nothing more than monetary gain? And I wish you could see the guys in the back row. (laughs) Now we know why they're sitting in the back row. A motive like that would be contemptible, all right? But if, on the other hand, your motive is to help a needy person, then your action is good. Helping the little old lady out of greed is bad. Helping the little old lady out of a motive of love or concern or whatever else turns that into a good action. You get the distinction? Now, W.D. Ross said you can get four combinations of behavior from these two words, and here they are. You can get an action that is you can you can do something that is the right act and a good action. That's how to get stars in your crown, all right? You do the right thing and you do it for the right reason, good reason. Hmm. Let's put a star right up here. Okay. That would be the way in which, I suggest, God would want us to behave always. That what we do is the good action, that is, our motive is pure and good and kind and loving, and it is the right thing to do. But life is more complex than that, because we live in a fallen world, and so a person could do the right act. That is at the same time a bad action, right? He does the help. I mean, let's say the little old lady is drowning down at up at Daytona Beach, all right? And you you say, is that the rich is that the rich lady? I think it is, all right? And somebody says, yes, that is the wealthy septuagenarian. Yeah. Well, let me let me be the one to save her. See. There's Marty Fields. He he runs. He jumps right in, swims, and helps her out. All right, does the right thing. That's look helping the little old lady is better than watching her drown. Please, does the right thing, but his action stinks. Oh, that's a bad word to use on tape, um, but it's appropriate. Right act, bad action. But then you get a third. Possibility, you get the wrong act that is a good action. Now, somebody described this kind of behavior. What would you have... To, don't give me an example necessarily, but a definition. What would you have to do to do the wrong act but have it be a good action? Hmm? Helping the little... Yeah. This is where... <laughs> For the people listening by tape, uh, um, the example given was helping the little old lady across the street when she doesn't want to go. See, this is where your motive is pure. You're doing. What what you want to do is is behave in a properly moral way, but You don't know what your duty is in this case, and thus, even though your intention is pure, you end up doing the wrong thing. Let me say here that Christians do this quite often in life, and we can be thankful that God is a forgiving God, all right? Have you ever done I'm gonna put my hand down, but it really should be up. Have you ever done the wrong acts when you misunderstood what your duty in life was, your motive was pure, but you didn't understand the circumstances well enough. Mm. Well, and then of course, <clears throat> we come to the fourth situation where you do the wrong act that is also a bad action. <laughs> Now, let me suggest here that you really got to be not only a bad apple, but you got to be stupid also. <laughs> all right? I mean, this is bad news. If you know anybody who, who repeatedly behaves in this way, this guy needs all kinds of tr- help, all right? He needs all kinds of help. He's not only got a bad character, but he's too dumb to know, <laughs> to know what he should be doing. I once had a professor who took these four kinds of behavior and applied them to famous American presidents. (laughs) Uh, But he did that. He did that. uh, Who was president then? Oh, I guess John F. Kennedy was president then. And we didn't know a whole lot about John F. Kennedy's character, All right. The problem is, you know, that a great many American presidents (laughs) have shown their adeptness at behaving in this fourth kind of way, behaving out of bad motives and doing the wrong thing. Well, we won't. You know how timid I am about making political judgments, so I will not name any names in this case. One other thing about this distinction, and this is one reason why why I'm fascinated by it, Ross's distinction may be a way in which we can preserve the best elements of consequentialism and deontology. You see, what W.D. Ross is saying by implication is that neither the deontologist who stresses duty alone or the consequentialist who stresses goodness alone, neither one of them, neither position alone, is adequate to give us the full picture of the truth. That perhaps the best, the most mature way of approaching moral decision-making is to recognize both the outside and the inside of what we do. Now I'm going to leave it to you uh, to think, to reflect about how Ross's distinctions here might relate to things that play an important role in the biblical ethic. Over the next week, you give some thought to what Scripture says about the inner reasons for our behavior, or what Scripture says about the consequences of our behavior. And, you know, uh, Ross may be on the right, may be on a right track here. Now I see a question in the back. Yes. Would Calvin say what would Calvin say about this would Calvin say for example that a, an unbeliever cannot do what a right act and a good action A right act and a good action <clears throat> If one is a Calvinist must one assume that all human behavior is necessarily either wrong a wrong act or a bad action well, Calvin didn't know about this distinction, so let me put myself in Calvin's shoes, and here's what I think I would have to say. I think I would have to say that we, one has to distinguish two levels here, all right, two levels. Let me give you an example to, to, to introduce you to one level. Take a person who, by nature, by disposition, is inclined to be evil, a thief, a criminal. Let's say if this person could do what he really wanted to do, he would steal and rob and pillage every time he got a chance to do it. But let's say that this person, even though his nature is evil, let's say this person consistently does the right thing because he is afraid of being punished for doing the wrong thing what we have then is a person whom we might say falls into this category he repeatedly does the right acts but he does them for the wrong reasons he doesn't do them because he's virtuous because he wants to help, he does them because he doesn't want to go to jail, he doesn't want to be punished, the reason he doesn't kill somebody is because he doesn't want to be executed. Now, let me suggest to you that even though a society full of people like this might be morally defective, (laughs) I wouldn't mind living in a society like that, all right, I mean, obviously a society in which everybody did the right thing for the good reasons would be would be preferable but i'd much rather have criminals and evil men restrained by law or sanctions or fear of punishment than than what you have going on in russia today or what you have going on <laughs> every night on the evening news here in Orlando, all right, where people are just killing other people and robbing and raping and so on. Now, as, as a Calvinist, I don't think I have any trouble saying that at a, in a certain level, fallen human beings can do the right thing for what they believe are good actions and what the rest of us might uh, appraise as good actions. All right, if we're all fallen human beings, and so we say to somebody, what is your motive for r- jumping in the water and saving that person? And the, un- the unregenerate person says, I jumped in the water, uh, I swam in that, those shark-infested waters, I saved a human life, because I felt it was my duty under the circumstances. Fallen human beings do think that way. All right? What makes us fallen, what makes us sinners, is that we fail to relate the moral quest to a holy sovereign God. That's what makes... we are covenant breakers. So, I think we can, uh, and I hope you're seeing what I'm getting at here, I think we can distinguish between fallen men behaving in ways that would satisfy W.D. Ross's point about right right acts and good actions, while in a deeper, more fundamental sense, all of our conduct falls short of the perfect standard of God. And now, if anybody wants to pursue that further, you're welcome to do it. Or should we just leave that on the table for now and continue to think about it? Well, I think maybe what Rick is saying is Calvin say that the good action is for God's good or is it for their own good? Or as your example said, it was good for humanity that that person be saved and that was the right act. But that's but it's what Calvin may say, well, but, but being sinful, that was, that's not that was not intentionally done God. Right. I'm sure Calvin would say something like that, and I would certainly agree with him. But I, I guess what I'm trying to get you to see is that as we go through life as members of the city of man, uh, uh, we not only have to, but I think it is good that we we judge other human behavior or our own as well according to somewhat less stringent standards because there are, none of us none of us will ever be in a position to know fully what some other human being was thinking how his motives related to the holy will of God right and so uh, I think I think most Most of us operate on a lower level here. We recognize despicable human conduct and despicable human traits, and we also recognize laudatory human traits and conduct which will still fall short of God's perfect standard. And it's important that we be able to function and operate on that lower level. That's what I'm trying to say. All right? The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.